Open up your Bibles to Romans. We look at the seventh part of our study of the attributes of God. We'll turn to Romans chapter 9. We're going to read verses 17 through 23 as we look at the subject of the patience of God. Now, this original series was eight parts, and I had mentioned when we started it uh, 10 years ago, feels like at this point, uh, that there were going to be more parts. I don't know how many more parts. Uh, I know there's one that is written. I've got seven more that uh, just need to be flushed out. Uh, but undoubtedly, there are more to the attributes of God than what we're going to cover. And I know I say that a lot. Uh, I am not the be-all, end-all of all the knowledge that this book has to contain. And I think Steve would probably say the same. I encourage you to study these things out. I encourage you to want to know more. Uh, and you're going to find it in the Word of God. Our text, as I said, is Romans 9, verses 17 through 23. And we'll start in verse 17 as we look at the patience of God. For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for the same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay, of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor, and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of his mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. Let us have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we approach uh, the subject of your patience, Father, I do ask, I, I plead uh, for your patience for all of us, those who know we're saved uh, in this space of repentance, that we would indeed be faithful to do so. Those who don't know yet that we are elect, Father, I ask your patience in our trespasses and our full rebellion. Those who don't know the right place for them, that don't know where they fit in, that don't know, uh, truly know of hope at all. I ask, Father, your patience. I ask for your deliverance for them. I ask for our full commitment to the gospel and the sharing of the gospel message as you've requested, that it be uh, seen as our reasonable service, that we would die unto ourselves, that we would only know that cross which you bear, and that it would be presented faithfully as a city set upon a hill, I ask, Father, for your mercy, as many, many times in every single day I have trespassed against thee. I ask, Father, that it not be my words or my voice heard this hour, but yours, that, Father, if there are here, those here who don't know you, that today they might hear you, they might see you, they might desire you, not of themselves, but a given desire. And we ask these things, Father, through the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. The Patience of God, Edgar Sheffield Brightman, a philosopher from Boston University who died in 1953, was deeply impressed with the fact of evil in the world. He supposedly believed in God and believed that God is good. However, he was known to defend his beliefs by arguing that God is doing the best he can. Doing the best he can. This is out of James Oliver Buswell's Systematic Theology of Christian Religion. Do you have a faith in a God who is doing the best he can? 
with this troublesome world, the full rebellion of man? Is he just doing all that he can do? You don't know the God of this Bible. The God of this Bible stopped water from flowing so that his people could traverse between two walls of flowing water, and they walked on dry land. I, I've talked to some folks that think that this is a possible miracle, but the ground had to be mushy because there was water there at one point. What? Is it a, a, a no less a miracle for him to dry that ground completely than to have moved the water at all? This is a God who keeps his promises. He's not struggling with the elements. He's not struggling with opinions. And he's not struggling with man. His will shall be done. But there is a degree of patience that we need to understand. I want you to know, first and foremost, this patience isn't there because of you. This patience is there because, as we said earlier in this study, he is absolutely holy. And as we see in his text, he shows mercy on whom he sees fit to show his mercy. And that is a degree of his patience. And there's more to it that we'll get into in just a moment. Buswell writes himself, if evil is to be explained by the assumption that God cannot prevent it, then, our, then we are led to a hopeless, pessimistic view of God and the universe. For this supposed finite good God has, all, has had all eternity in which to do the best he can. If the present situation is the best he can do in infinite time, then evil must be more powerful than good, and there is no hope for the future. Do you have a no-hope salvation in a God that's doing the very best that he can? More tough questions, I know. I'm playing, I'm playing unfair. That's really how faith builds itself, is through tough questions, and us not running from them, but seeking the answers in the Word of God. What kind of God do you believe in? As we've taught of the God of the Bible and his attributes, evil has come about through the voluntary self-corruption of the creature. God is not the author of evil, but that in order to bring into actuality his power, his name, his wrath against sin, his ability to save, and his glory in the salvation of his people, he chose to endure with much long-suffering the sin and corruption of man as seen in our text. A real quick illustration of his patience when he sealed up, when he removed Adam and Eve from the garden, not Eden, garden itself, and he put the spinning, flaming sword, set the cherubim to guard it, he could have just sealed Adam and Eve in there until they overpopulated the place so much that they used up all that was available unto them and died, if that was feasible, feasibly possible in the garden. He could have just slayed Adam and Eve as an offering unto his own holiness and been done with mankind altogether. He could have omitted at the end of Genesis 3 any mention of mercy or the tree of life. Who would deny that Adam and Eve did not deserve mercy or the tree of life? But the patience of God, we see seven, eight, nine thousand years and think, why are we still here? <laughs> this is a mercy of God because we should have been annihilated in the very beginning, after however many years Adam and Eve had together, it should have ended when they trespassed against God. It is his patience. It is his mercy that we are still here. And it will be his mercy that removes the elect in the rapture, hopefully soon. There are a few things we need to consider of his patience. His patience in particular, 
a place of appealing for the elect, and thirdly, a place of certain judgment for the wicked. As we are in the last two parts of this original series, these, this and the next message are not fun. The patience of God we look at today, the punishment of God we look at next Sunday. I don't tell you that so you can plan to miss next Sunday. I tell you that so you can prepare your hearts. To truly discuss the punishment of God, it's a difficult thing. Uh, it's a difficult thing to prepare for as a preacher or a teacher, and it's a difficult thing, it should be a difficult thing for you to prepare to receive. If you'd like any of these outlines, I can make them available to you, but again, it's not because they have all the information and knowledge that this book contains, but I think it's a healthy guide to get you started. But you need the Word of God. You hear this message and the next message, and you wrestle in your flesh, and you lose some sleep over your depravity and the punishment that awaits, you need the Word of God. You need that hope. You need something that points you to that tree of life that's mentioned way back in Genesis 3 as the second lest in that chapter. The only hope. The only way you're going to see the kingdom of heaven is through the Son, through being born again. First thing we look at is his patience in particular. The, we read of his patience or his long-suffering alongside his mercy and goodness quite often in the Bible. Numbers 14 verse 18 says, The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by, one, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation. Uh, and if you're a, a numerical person, you can do that math. It lines up. Psalm 86:15 But thou O Lord art a full art a God full of compassion and gracious long suffering and plenteous in mercy and truth. Is it the same thing though or are we missing a fine attribute of our judge lawgiver and king as we've been reading in Isaiah 33:22 by not giving it further study. We simply see these words long suffering and mercy tied together and we just think that they, they always go together like peanut butter and jelly. They'll never be separated. But of God's patience, Stephen Carnock writes, it is part of the divine goodness and mercy yet differs from both. God being the greatest goodness hath the greatest mildness. Mildness is always the companion of true goodness. And the greater the goodness, the greater the mildness, which we saw in this study. He continues, who so holy as Christ... And who so meek? God's slowness to anger is a branch from his mercy. And he quotes Psalm 145, verse 8. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. It differs from mercy in the formal consideration of the object. Mercy respects the creature as miserable. Patience respects the creature as criminal. Mercy pities him in his misery, and patience bears with the sin which engendered the misery and is giving birth to more. In other words, a prince can bridle his passions, or rather a prince that can bridle his passions is a king over himself as well as over his subjects. God is slow to anger because he is great in power. He has no less power over himself than over his creatures. I think we, we consider his power and we consider his mercy and we consider his patience and, and we uh, maybe unintentionally imagine God to be just a supreme version of ourselves and so we think that in his wrath he'll be reckless. In his wrath he'll be out of control in a berserker rage. No, that's not God. God is not man. He's not succumbed to such temptations. He's never out of control, quote-unquote. 
he has no less power over himself than over his crea- uh, creatures. Did it twice. No less power over himself than over his creatures. We then can affirm then as Pink did that the patience of God is that excellency which causes him to sustain great injuries without immediately avenging himself. Hence Genesis 3. The patience of God to not just immediately extinguish mankind took great power, took great resolve at a level that none could possibly imagine. For example... Uh, of, of injury consider the book of malachi the actions of jonah or even the forsaking of simon peter and the per- persecution of saul of tarsus think of simon peter especially as we've seen so much of him lately in our afternoon study the lord has sustained in his earthly ministry in the person of jesus christ he has sustained injury after injury after injury uh misassumptions uh misspeaking think of god in his supremeness, hearing these things. I mean, I go back to the, the lesson on leaven, and, and the Lord knew how important that lesson was. Man didn't. Maybe we don't still know how important that lesson against leaven is. He's teaching it, and they're distracted and preoccupied. And PKs get all worked up when they're, when they're PDs, preacher daddies, call them out from the pulpit. But Jesus didn't have to call anybody out. He could have said, that's it, I'm done, it's finished, gone. Should have done this back in Genesis 3. Not going to deal with this anymore. You can't pay attention to me. You can't stay awake here. You can't listen to what is happening right in front of you when the Son of God is speaking with two saints of old. You can't focus as I give you a lesson on leaven. You can't focus as I, I, I go through agony in the garden. You can't stand by me as I hang from the cross. As John did, these are all just injuries he he endured uh, from an emotional standpoint, of course. During his earthly ministry, there's a great many in the other 60-some books of the Bible that God over all time has endured for our sakes. I don't know that we know enough about the patience of God. We always caution one another to be careful about praying for patience. When you pray for patience, you're praying to the one of the most patience, the one who not only invented but exercises to the nth degree his patience. Secondly, we need to consider that his patience is a place of appealing for the elect. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. It says there in verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And if you're there uh, in 2 Peter 3 and you mark your Bibles, you might underline the word usward and then maybe mark in the, in, the, in the margins that in the context of this chapter, he tells you who the usward is. It is the beloved. He mentions them in verse 1, verse 8, verse 14, and verse 17. That is the usward. He is long-suffering to the beloved, that are, their reference, at, at, at least in the context of this chapter, in verse 1, 8, 14, and 17, there are uh, referenced throughout Peter's writings. But in the context of this chapter, they are specifically mentioned four times. What is this promise? He is not slack in concerning his promise. 
What is this promise? Verse 3 and 4 speaks to it in this same chapter. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. This seems to confirm that the promise to be that which comes in the verse that follows of what we looked at in verse 9. So look at verse 10. And I know this is a lot of jumping around. Studying the Bible sometimes does that. 2 Peter 3, verse 10. The Lord is, uh, or rather that's verse 9, verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come. This is the promise. The promise that they were scoffing about in verses uh, 3 and 4, this is the promise that the Lord is not slack concerning. The day of the Lord will come. It will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. What will that be like, preacher? I've never <laughs> gone through anything like that. I can't tell you more than what the scriptures tell you. There's a lot of people who have written about what that's going to be like. Uh, I can't tell you that they're all wrong. And I also can't confirm for you that any of them are right. But I can tell you, we know what we need to know from Peter's writing here. It's coming. And that though scoffers, uh, and they are scoffing already in these perilous times, that the Lord may not be coming. He is not slack concerning his promises. Let us consider the verses that preceded our quote that we mentioned earlier from Numbers 14. We, we read Numbers 14, verse 18, The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. We see immediately long-suffering and mercy tied together. But in the context of that chapter, if you'll turn over there with me, Numbers 14, verses 11 through 18, we see what it's concerning. Numbers chapter 14, starting in verse 11. Sticky pages, Marcia. New Bible. Be patient with me. Numbers 14, verse 11. And the Lord said unto Moses, How long will this people provoke me? Again, we're teaching on the patience of God. And this is, these are the words of God to Moses, his messenger of the day to the people. How long will this people provoke me? Speaking again of the injuries that he endured. And how long will it be ere they believe me for all the signs which I have showed among them? Now, the Lord's not talking to Moses as a man here, saying he doesn't know when they'll believe, saying he doesn't know what it will take. The Lord knew. The Lamb's Book of Life, written before the foundation of the world, he knew every detail. But he's challenging Moses. He's presenting to Moses, who is the writer of this book, the, the very dilemma of the patience of God compared to the patience of man and the patience of God compared to the lack of faith of man. He says, I will smite them with a pestilence and disinherit them and will make of thee a greater nation and a mightier than they. He's literally presenting a hypothesis that I've stated in the opening of this message. When we want to understand the patience of God, we have to understand he already had the power to do this. When we fell, before we fell, he had the power to do this. He's never been slack in power. He's never been slack in faithfulness to the promise either. And Moses said unto the Lord, Then the Egyptians shall hear it, for thou broughtest up this people in thy might from among them, and they will tell it to the inhabitants 
of this land, for they have heard that thou, Lord, art among his people, this people, that thou, Lord, art seen face to face, and that thy cloud standeth over them, and that thou goest before them by day time in a pillar of a cloud, and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if thou shalt kill all this people as one man, then the nations which have heard the fame of thee will speak, saying, Because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land which he sware unto them, therefore he has slain them in the wilderness. And now I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great, according as thou hast spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation. We see then in context that these words were Moses' words, not just what he wrote, but what he said. This was the faith of Moses in this great God, that his patience would endure. He wasn't taunting God. He wasn't reminding God of something he had forgotten. We see on exhibition here, faith. Faith. Yet, as we mentioned earlier, Abraham knew Isaac would have to be spared for the promised lineage to come from him, for that promised seed to come from him. It didn't stop the three-day journey, didn't stop the, the climb of the mountain, didn't stop the binding, the fire, or the blade. To believe doesn't stop our feet. It moves our feet. In response to this, in Numbers 14, verses 1 through 4, this is what the Lord is responding to. And I know I'm driving you crazy going backwards here. But in the context, these were Moses' words. This is the, the, the framing, the proving of Moses from what the Lord had set up there in verse 11. But this is what it's in response to. In Numbers 14, verses 1 through 4, all the congregation... All the Israelites lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, and the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt. I, sometimes with the nation of Israel, I think of these kids when they were babies. And they didn't get their way. I wish I'd never been born! And they storm off to their bedrooms and weep all night. Moms, dads, has that moved you to cave in? Has that moved your patience even a shred? My mother-in-law shaking her head no. It doesn't change God either. Uh, and he's even more steadfast than you are. Or would God we had died in this wilderness? And wherefore hath the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword that our wives and our children should be prey? Were it not better for us to return into Egypt? And they said one to another, Let us make a captain, and let us return into Egypt. They would prefer, as they had illustrated uh, later as well, they'd prefer to be led by man than God. Why? Because man can be swayed. Man can be influenced. Man can be appealed to in such a way because he's just as wicked as the appealers. We can appeal to God, but only through the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ is 100% God. He has the ability to appeal to God the Father. You do not. When you appeal to God, you appeal through Christ. When we pray to God, we say, by the will of, or through the name of, or by the blood of, we appeal through Christ to God. The veil's torn asunder, but it's torn asunder for the blood of Christ. 
not the blood of undeserving wretches like us. The patience of God is endured in allowing such access. Who could deny the disobedience of the Israelites here? Who would stand in the way of God's wrath and do combat with God? We see, as we've already read, Moses does. I don't know that Moses was necessarily going to do it on his own. God had to present to him that these people deserve pestilence. They, they deserve to be cut off. And he, in a way, and I don't want to go too far with this, but in a way appeals to the pride of Moses and says, I'll start over again with you. He's testing the resolve of Moses here. Are you following me? Are the appeals of those crying children in the other room drawing your heart away from me, God says. He's precious right now, Nolan is, but he's going to be doing that soon. Except die does it. Isaac does too. Yeah. Are they drawing your heart away from God? Are they saying, oh, mom, dad, put God's will second for a minute and listen to me. I don't have your full attention. God's not like a whiny brat. God simply tells Moses, they deserve death. They deserve death. And what does Moses appeal to God with? The same reason salvation came to begin with, for his namesake. He appeals to God through his own name. This is the reason you saved us. This is the reason you redeemed us. This is the reason you exodus us, that you led us through this wilderness, that you made the bitter waters sweet, that you've given us this testimony that your name shall be glorified among the heathen. Who would stand in the way of God's wrath? Only God could stand in the way of God's wrath. This is what Moses appealed to. Lord, be patient with them that your long-suffering and mercy and forgiveness be seen before all nations. He's not appealing to the pride of God. There is no pride in God. There's no reason for pride in God. He has nothing to excel up to or grow into or really anything to be compared unto. Salvation is for his own namesake, so his... So is his forbearing. We read this before, but Isaiah 48, verses 9 through 11, For my name's sake will I defer mine anger, and for my praise will I refrain for thee, that I cut thee not off. Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. For mine own sake, even for mine own sake, will I do it. For how should my name be polluted? And I will not give my glory unto another. Paul even writes uh, of this as our model in how to forgive others in Colossians 3, verse 13. Forbearing one another, forgiving or freely giving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. We are not merely forgiving the forgiven or even the forgivable, but any man, according to Paul's writings here in Colossians 3. The last thing for us to consider this patience of God is a place of certain judgment for the wicked. Certain judgment for the wicked. The patience of God is also manifested in his dealings with sinners, of which so were we. Think of the antediluvians, the, the pre-flood folks. 
Genesis 6, verses 5 through 7, God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Mankind was universally degenerate and only imagined wickedness continually, yet God had not destroyed them until he had forewarned them. This is the very purpose of Noah. He didn't just build a boat, folks. He was a preacher and for nearly 120 years preached righteousness. And some might say, but only eight were aboard the ark. All that perished were forewarned. They knew that God was going to flood, that God was going to judge. And so do you. How do you respond? You know he's coming again. And you know he is a masterful judge, a terrible king. And he is a lawgiver. And he will save his own. He's coming. Just as sure as I am standing here right now, he is coming. He could be on his approach this very moment, just a loud noise away from the heavens peeling back. And this isn't the first time you've been warned. Not the first time you've heard it. 1 Peter 3.20, Once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by waters. A hundred and twenty years or so God had for Noah to be a preacher of righteousness, first, uh, according to 2 Peter 2.5, warning the world of the coming flood, the coming judgment. 1 Peter 2.5 and 6 says that God spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that should live ungodly. An ensample, something to be looked upon and learned from, something to be considered and maybe meditated upon. What does this mean? Why is it called sodomy? The judgments of God, they bear meaning for us still in 2022. He's the same God. In both examples, certain judgment did come. But again, not before a forewarning, not before the message of deliverance was preached. It is truly amazing that God does not instantly strike dead those who so brazenly defy him. I mean, think of the pile that we see at the door of those who have walked out and rejected the teaching of God's word. Well, if we dropped over just at the first rebellion, and we know that it's in us from birth, but the first spoken rebellion upon hearing the truth of his word, it's a blessing to hear the truth of his word. I don't know how many of y'all know what it's like to go 18 years in, uh, in, in, a, in a religion such as Roman Catholicism, and be hungry and not know you're hungry. Be starved for truth, ever learning and not coming to the truth, and not know it. And then it's as though one who's lost in a desert finally finds that which is not a mirage, a true well 
of cool water, and he's just lapping it up. Can't get enough of it. It's never quenched. And he could drink and drink and drink and drink of this everlasting well, and it never runs out. And he's never exhausted of it, never had too much, never had quite enough. He bears with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. Thank God he does. How many times do we have to be told? He has buried with us for such a long time. The message of God's coming judgment has been preached. We'll see next Sunday his punishment. The time that we're in, this space of repentance, is soon to come to an end. Yeah, I know you've heard it. I'm sure Milburn preached it. It wasn't untrue just because it didn't happen in his lifetime. It's not untrue just because it hasn't happened yet. It's coming, folks. Only you know how you have responded to, to the phrase, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was John the Baptist's message. It was the Lord's message, Matthew 4, 17. Has he not been patient with us thus far? Has he not personally been patient with you as you've rejected him, as you've not just made him so that he's not your number one priority, but not prioritized him at all? I mean, how many have started to make plans for 2023 and the things you hope to accomplish, and God's not in those plans? The Bible says that we shouldn't even make plans, lest the Lord wills. I will do such and such if it be the will of the Lord. That's what your planner should look like. This is what I hope to do if the Lord allows it. This is what I'd like to do if the Lord would allow it. Or your planner should just be blank. Lord, whatever you'd have for me, just leave. Close the doors. Leave only the open doors for which is in your will. And you drive. You drive. I pray as we continue this study, as we look at the punishment of God next Sunday, Lord willing, that you take very seriously. This may be the, the 300th time you've heard a message on the punishment of God. Take it very, very seriously. I, I firmly believe we only have a small glimpse of what hell is actually like. I don't know that our minds could handle it in its totality. I don't know that you want to test this. I don't know that you want to wait and see. Scriptures gives no hope that there's a purgatory. No hope that you'll get to change your mind later. If the Lord has impressed something upon your heart, you need to handle that business right away. You need to see what the Bible has for you right now, this very hour. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, repent. Come to know the Lord. Turn away from such things, strengths of your own arms. Come away from the, uh, the hope that the government is going to save you, that mom and dad are going to appeal to your night terrors. They shouldn't. You wouldn't really want them to. If they save you, they have to keep you. You've heard me say that before. May the Lord do a great work of repentance here today. That some would be led to repent unto salvation. That others would be repenting uh, unto a restoration of their backslidden state. I can't speak to that for you. I know where I am. And I need help. I need his patience. Perhaps you're there with me. I'll be around if you have questions, if you want to talk, if you just want somebody to hold you, to pray with you, to cry with you talked about this a lot lately and as we talked on Wednesday every person in this room is a gift to you every person in this room would benefit from a conversation with you not because you're great and, and such a super influencer but because you've been brought here 
on this very day for a very specific reason, and I don't know what it is, don't let a single person leave this building without your at least acknowledging them, talking to them, hugging them if they'll permit, shaking their hand, letting them know you're praying for them and mean it. Nothing so shallow, so hypocritical as a Christian that just says, I'll pray for you, I'll pray for you, I'll pray for you. That's simply impossible if you don't write down a name from time to time. It's good to pray for God's people. It's good to pray for them by name. This is the space of his patience. May the Lord be merciful unto each and every one of us.